Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. This week, my guests and I are taking a look at M. Night Shyamalan's 2021 horror film, Old. Adapted from writer Pierre Oscar Levy and artist Frederick Peters' 2010 graphic novel Sandcastle, Old sees a family of four's idyllic tropical vacation turn hellish as they become trapped on a secluded beach, where time accelerates, condensing their lives and those of the guests trapped there into a single hellish day. And joining me this week to chat Shyamalan, Mortality, and The Beach That Makes You Old is a features editor for TheGamer.com, Andrew King. Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Hey, how you doing, Jay? Good to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. And, you know, I had you on Safe Room and I enjoyed having you on when we chatted about, you know, horror games that don't feature combat and yeah. the strengths of those and whatnot. And so when I kind of did this general call to, you know, chat about uh, Evil Dead for the podcast and whatnot. Like, unfortunately, when you had reached out to me, I already filled those slots, but I was still looking forward to chat with you again. And, you know, you mentioned to me that Old was one of your, or was your favorite horror movie of 2021. So, you know, I'm excited to pick your brain on your sort of your horror history and we can, you know, revel in our mutual love of uh, M. Night Shyamalan and then we can kind of dive into Old and why that's a film that, you know, resonated with you as much as it did so yes i'm excited to talk about it i think you and i um sort of are on you know not entirely opposite ends of the spectrum but you know i liked it a lot more than you did so i'm excited to you know get into it and you know before we dive into uh m night and old uh, as is tradition at daily horror habit i like to ask first time guests what was the first horror movie or moment that left a profound effect on you for uh for better or worse um it was you know, very fitting for the topic of this podcast because it was The Village. That's oh, the that's the first horror movie I remember seeing. If you go back a little further, I I can like think of other scary experiences that I had in theaters, like uh, the Lord of the Rings. the The cave troll scared me in the first one. The brief glimpse that you get of Gollum following the Fellowship and the Fellowship of the Ring was enough that it like left an indelible mark on me, just his big lantern eyes staring at, you know, Frodo and Gandalf. And then the Two Towers, you know, was also... I mean, all, all three of those movies have little good golem bits that are pretty freaky, like the first, you know, ten minutes or so of Return of the King when you're seeing his transformation and him murdering Deagle. Those were, uh, you know, sort of formative moments in what I find scary. But yeah, The Village is the first... <clears throat> It's definitely the first horror movie I remember going to see in theaters. I saw that, you know, I don't know if it was opening night, but I remember the theater being packed, which I feel like only happened for the opening weekend of that movie because I had a pretty significant <laughs> drop off. Um, I went and saw that with my dad and I remember being, you know, very captivated by that movie. And I was probably at the right age for it because I know that critically for M. Night Shyamalan, that is the beginning of his drop-off, you know? It's, mm. like, right on the edge where it's, like, you know, still made a profit, still has his defenders, but, you know, the next movie he makes is Lady on the Water and then The Happening and then um, The Last Airbender, and it sort of is, like, this really long trough in his career. Um... But yeah, The Village, I remember being very struck by the premise. I'm sure it was the first movie that I saw that had a twist. And so, I mean, spoilers for The Village, like seeing them, seeing Bryce Dallas Howard's character get out of the village and see that she was in a modern, you know, setting. I'm sure that like adults that saw it probably could have predicted that twist. But for me, it was, you know, it sort of blew my mind. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, my appreciation for, you know, practical effects and good monster designs probably comes from that movie too. Cause I, the, uh, the costumes that the village elders used to, you know, patrol the, uh, the village was definitely scary to me and striking to me. And, um, I lived with woods around my house growing up. And so, you know, 
I'm sure that that was something that was very, you know, sort of potent for me because it, it sort of hit me where I lived. So, yeah, M. Night has been, you know, with me for as long as I've been, not as long as I've been watching movies, but definitely as long as I've been watching horror. Yeah, you know, it before jumping into uh, The Village, like mentioning Lord of the Rings and it having like horror moments and that being something that for me was unexpected when I saw those movies in the theaters as a kid. Like the moment that scared the shit out of me was when uh, I think it's Frodo tries to take the ring from Bilbo and Bilbo turns around and it's got like this like monstrous face. And like that was one of those moments that kind of taught me as a viewer, like obviously I enjoyed horror at that point in my life. And, you know, horror films were something that, you know, growing up, I didn't necessarily have a lot of access to unless mm-hmm. I was like visiting grandparents who were very much into horror and sci-fi and stuff like that. Whereas like my parents were not, so I wasn't watching that stuff a lot, but you know, Lord of the Rings was one of those things that one of those films that taught me like, Oh, you can have films that are in different genres that could have moments or elements that could be horror adjacent and yeah. how, you know, how malleable horror is. And I mean, that was such a pivotal moment in my, you know, movie viewing experience, the idea of, and, you know, growing up as a kid and not having good internet or internet at all until, yeah. you know, probably towards the end of middle school, early high school, whatnot. Um, it was something that I wasn't really cognizant of. And so, you know, seeing more films that had horror adjacent moments or elements in them kind of just showed the trajectory and the potential of horror in a way that was really exciting, especially yeah. then, you know, having more easily uh, accessible access to, you know, video stores or, you know, finally getting a part-time job and, you know, funding my newfound obsession with movies and stuff like that. It was like, oh, this is a whole new world. I don't just have to look in the horror section. There's the potential horror could pop up anywhere. Yeah. But in terms of like The Village, that was a movie that I didn't appreciate until later when I was older, because it was the type of thing where, like you mentioned with the twist, there is no real, you know, monster, right? It is very much this facade put on by the elders. And then I wasn't at that age really able to appreciate. It's more of a commentary on, you know, people in society, right? The fact that they create this illusion for the people that live there as a result of, you know, all being victims of violence in some way in society and how that shapes them. And like, you know, for a kid, when I saw that movie in the theater, I think it was what, 2004, I was a kid, so I couldn't appreciate that and felt let down by the twist because it's like, oh, this is all, none of this is real. I've been duped, essentially. And, you know, to be fair, you need to be of a certain age, I think, to appreciate that. But, you know, that movie serves as a twist that, and, you know, people like to say that, like, oh, he's known for his twists and whatnot, which at this point is a disservice because I think the twists that he does have in his films, like, there's a greater significance there than, of course, just to dupe the audience or to throw them a curveball, right? Which, you know, I think that's probably why he's a filmmaker that both you and I have great admiration for, right? The idea that he dabbles in, you know, genre filmmaking and horror and whatnot. But at least in my opinion, he's a filmmaker that is able to have a good amount of like real world perspective or has something to say, even with the more supernatural films that he has uh, dabbled in and whatnot. Yeah. I think he's an underratedly political filmmaker in ways that are usually allegorical, like old, obviously the ending of it gets into like, um, you know, questions of corporate ethics. Right. And the fact that this company that is running the experiments on the beach is, doing the moral calculus that like for X number of people saved from diseases, it's worth sentencing these people to death, you know? But he's also is like an allegorical filmmaker in that I think old, part of the reason that I really enjoy it, and this was not something I picked up on the first time that I watched it, but it's something that I've heard other people talk about and really like increased like tenfold my appreciation for it is the extent to which it feels like a climate change allegory. That there are these, you know, children that because of decisions outside of their control are, you know, basically, you know, midway through their lives, even though they're children, you know, they're they're staring at the end of their life because of decisions outside of their control, which is very, you know, relatable. Um, If you are, you know, somebody who is thinking, well, I don't know if I want to have children in a world that is ravaged by climate change, you know old is a movie that is in conversation with that fear. And um, 
you know, the village as we were talking about earlier is very much a post 9-11 movie, right? That it's like this family because or all these people because of violence that was done to them are retreating to this village in the woods where they will be free from, you know, the influence of the outside world where they can keep themselves and their family safe. Um, so, yeah, I think he's a filmmaker who is not always, he doesn't bat a thousand for sure. I think he, I think his average is probably about 500. Like it, the amount of movies that I think are of his are great versus the amount that I think are pretty awful. It's about <laughs> half and half. Um, but I think that even when he is not, um, at his best, he still has interesting things to say. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would argue that with a filmmaker like him that's batting, you know, about 500, it's the type of thing where I was like, well, I almost would want him to be on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? If he delivered a movie that was like kind of just a shrug almost, you would be like, well, I know he's capable of more. And then at the same time, when he delivers a film that is incredibly underwhelming or doesn't really meet the mark for me, at the same time, I say the same thing. I'm like, well, I know he's capable of more. Right. And, you know, mentioning early on the fact that like you and I initially were kind of like at opposite ends in terms of our feelings on old, like the first time I watched it, I'll be honest. I was like, well, that was kind of like a bad episode of the twilight zone. Right. And that's plenty of people have described it as twilight zone esque in terms of that setup and, you know, the premise and whatnot. Um, But on a recent rewatch, I, you know, not to say that I love it now, but I definitely appreciated more just his voice coming through in a way, in terms of, you know, you mentioning that he's sort of an underrated or rarely uh, discussed the fact that, like, his films are very political without beating you over the head with it in a way that is not an intrinsic part of the overall sort of theme or foundation of the supernatural element, like with this film specifically, right? The Beach yeah. That Makes You Old and whatnot, um, which has kind of been memefied, but I think that it shines through and it rings true through the character interactions. And while, you know, I'm sure I'll get to, uh, I'll get to complain a little bit about Uh. some of the characters and their dialogue and whatnot at some point. But I think overall, like in revisiting it, I have a greater appreciation for the core family. Right. And the fact that there is a real genuine sort of arc in them. And there is a truth in their interactions with one another that initially I didn't, pay a lot of mind to, I suppose, because I was too distracted by the elements that didn't necessarily strike me as much as they might have for you or just people in general that had a better appreciation for the movie than I did initially. But, you know, I I love having people on to chat about movies that maybe we don't necessarily see eye to eye on it, but at the same time, you know, can have a productive conversation, I'm sure. Yes, I think it's exciting. I think, you know, like we were talking about M. Night Shyamalan and how like you know, regardless of whether his movies are good or bad, they're rarely a shrug. And I feel like a lot of podcast conversations can sort of feel like a shrug or everybody's trying to get on the same page. So I think it's fun when you have people that have different opinions about something coming together to talk about it and seeing where they differ and where they agree, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, who wants to listen to two people agree ad nauseum for 60 60 to 90 minutes? But Um, I guess, you know, you described it as your favorite movie of 2021. And so I'm curious, you know, generally speaking, before getting into maybe more of the specifics, uh, like generally speaking, why was this one of the standout horror films or the standout horror film for you of uh, 2021? I think it's because um, I was talking to a friend of mine recently about sequels and sort of he was complaining that it feels like all movies basically whether they need them or not get sequels now which i mean is something people have been complaining about since basically the 80s right you know (laughs) and um i was saying well the kind of movie that doesn't get sequels are movies that are about ideas right that are like are primarily about not characters not building a world but are about exploring one idea and exploring that idea fully and um Old is a movie that's like that, right? It's a movie that is taking a simple, high concept, what if there was a beach that made you old, and exploring all of the like manifold ways that time speeding up in that way would affect your body, your mind. 
it uh there's there's like moments in the movie where I'm like, oh, is it going? Is it gonna go there? And then he doesn't back away from it. You know, there's the there's the moment where you see the two um, kids who were you know like six when the movie begins, but they're now teenagers, and you see them. The way he frames it is you're just getting little pieces of their face, like a quarter of their face or like a little bit of the back of their head, and you're like, oh, is this like sexual? Am I wrong to think that there's something sexual going on there? And then, like, it skips forward a little bit, and they're walking out of the tent, and the family is walking back towards them, and the girl has a pregnant, you know, belly. And it's like, that is the result of a filmmaker looking at an idea, thinking, I need to go deeper than the first layer on this. You know, I think of, um, have you ever watched the show How To with John Wilson? I have not, no. Okay, so that's a show on HBO where he'll take a topic like how to enjoy wine. And then he'll go and film people on the streets of New York City and he'll do like a narration over it paired with, you know, funny videos, like funny candid stuff of people doing stuff on the streets. Um, But there's an episode of that where he's talking about how to enjoy wine and he's like, well, if I want to enjoy wine, I should get to enjoy old stuff. And so he meets up with a guy who is like a collector of really old MREs. Uh, <laughs> like he's got a collection of like MREs from Vietnam. And so this guy, <laughs> the host goes over and like they eat a Vietnam era MRE together. Oh yeah. It's disgusting. It also is like, <laughs> how would you think of that? That's right. only that's only the result of somebody taking an idea and go brainstorming and brainstorming until they get way down below the surface level that you get like a left turn idea like that. Old to me feels like the product of a filmmaker. And I mean, it's I'm sure I haven't read the Sandcastles, but I'm sure some of a lot of it is present in the source material. But it is like the result of creators taking this concept and digging down as far as they can go and not being afraid not flinching away from the implications of that and what it means that they will have to show. Yeah. You know, there's a scene in that is similar to that in the way that M night frames it, that, you know, I on a rewatch found to be probably the most terrifying part of the, one of the most terrifying parts of the movie. And that is when, you know, initially you have um, the two kids and they've aged, right. They've aged ahead a considerable amount of years And they don't realize, of course, that they have aged, right? They still feel like they are little kids. But there's that couple that uh, kind of like takes them to the side after somebody else has had, I think it's when the doctor's uh, mother has died, right? She Mm -hmm. has, you know, she ages to the point that she passes away and whatnot. And they kind of remove the, the quote unquote children from that and try to calm them down. And then they start asking them like, oh, how old are you? And Trent is like, oh, I'm six. And clearly at that point, he's probably like 12 or something like that. And just trying to like seeing the confusion of the adults and being like, oh, they're messing with us and the kids not being able to process that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, of course, that bleeds into the parents seeing their kids, but it's like their brains are not able to fully kind of comprehend what they're seeing, even though someone's telling them like, oh, that's your kids. Like, what do you mean? And then just like seeing the sort of blank stare on their face and then they know the reality, but their brain is like a few paces behind this, this improbable scenario. I mean, you see the, not that I'm a parent, but like you see the pain of a parent, (laughs) pain in that parent's face and just realizing like what is happening. And there's, you know, I, this year I turned 30 and it's the type of thing where it's like the idea of aging. And then I'm getting to the point where like seeing like noticing my parents getting older and things like that. Like it is somewhat comparable, I think in terms of just like noticing a change one day and whatnot. And then all of a sudden it hitting you and, you know, the potential implications of that and things, of course it wasn't in the matter of moments. It's been a matter of years, but um, I think that it's a compliment to M night Shyamalan on the fact that he's able to take this premise that again is very twilight zone esque, but there's real, you know, real world emotions and there's real world experiences in that. And I think that that, if anything, is probably old's greatest strength, no matter Mm -hmm. the type of, you know, reservations or qualms I might have with it. The fact of the matter is, is that for a premise that, you know, 
for lack of a better way of describing it, like a ludicrous premise mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like has very real world sentiment and real world experiences influencing that. And I think that that's something that, and you know, partially maybe it's, you know, when I rewatched it, I did get a little high when I was watching it, and got <laughs> a little sentimental and whatnot, but it's the type of thing that, you know, I was able to appreciate more the smaller moments and the smaller bits of dialogue between the parents and the children, um, you know, more so maybe than some of the other characters. But I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, getting older myself, just the idea that you're picking up on little things and you start to realize like, oh, time is fleeting. And it's unfortunate that we don't stop more and appreciate things like that unless, you know, you end up on the beach that makes you older, you know, in real life, you know, some tragedy occurs or something like that that makes you really kind of like stop and reassess relationships and, you know, where you're at in your life and these things. And, you know, it's, I think it is a, an unspoken quality of this film, or maybe it's something that M. Night Shyamalan in general, you know, you're talking about him being a political filmmaker, mm-hmm. you know, inserting his uh, viewpoints on the world or where we're at and just general commentary, but it feels intrinsic to the themes of the movie rather than, you know, characters just based on what they say, kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, uh, I think you're right that the central family, the four characters and I think the the little girl from the other family too are the best drawn of the characters both in terms of performance and in terms of his writing he is a writer who can go like uh broad in his dialogue and I think there's a lot of dialogue in this film that is there purely to advance the mechanics of the plot and the group's understanding of what is going on. And so some of it can be a little clunky, like I'm Jaren or I'm a nurse. My name is Jaren, you know, (laughs) like there's stuff in there that is definitely clunky, but the, the family I think is drawn really well. And I think it is like, part of it is the continuity of the performances between the kids that are playing them when they're young and then Alex Wolf, Eliza Scanlon, and um, uh, Thomas and Mackenzie that are playing them as teenagers. And then the two adults that I think they cast very well to play um, Trent and Maddox when they are, you know, 50. There's a real, like, it would be very easy to cast in such a way that it doesn't feel like this kid would become that kid. But I do feel like they become, they they make sense as the older versions of each other. And also they do a good job of playing people that were young that morning, you know, like there's a moment when Eliza Scanlon and um, Alex Wolf come out of the tent and she reaches into the pasta salad and just grabs a handful of it <laughs> and is like stuffing it into her face right. and is like smiling at him like this goofy smile while there's like pasta sticking out of her mouth. And then when she sees that her mom is like horrified to see that she's pregnant. She says, it's okay, mom, mommy, I just got a little fat. And it's like, these are ways that children would act if they were in the bodies of, you know, teenagers. And I think through the performance and I think like through his script, I think there are some well-observed lines that capture like, how would a child in the body of a teenager describe the feeling? There's a moment when Thomas and Mackenzie says, Yes, earlier or this morning, my thoughts had a few colors and they were really bright. And now they have more colors and they're dimmer, you know, and that really is a like killer way to me to describe the process of emotionally becoming a teenager and losing the potency of emotion that you have as a child when everything is so powerful. You know, everything feels so extreme. Yeah, that's a really great point in terms of, you know, there really doesn't feel like there's a great leap between their aging, right? And it feels very natural in a way that, you know, outside of the like literal physical changes of them aging, but, you know, it a beat is not missed in terms of like their personalities, right? It's a continuation and it's not jarring. You know, initially when you see them, of course, being older, like, yeah, that's jarring or that's terrifying. But at the same time, like the performances feel like a beat is not missed between those. And if anything, like that could be a massive misstep with this movie that kind of undercuts the central, you know, theme of the movie and whatnot, um, which 
again, you know, for my qualms with maybe the clunky, clunkier moments of dialogue, like that is spot on, I think. Because if you don't have that, you don't have anything. And the entire foundation basically, you know, crumbles like a sandcastle, um, which is why I love that moment at the very end, right? Where it's like before they escape through the coral, it's like, oh, let's like take a moment and build a sandcastle. Because at the end of the day, they are still children, right? And they have those, uh, you know, impulses and whatnot or what you know in general interests and things of that nature um but yeah you know again with m night i'm more impressed in terms of portraying like very believable characters before they even get to the beach right mm. the idea and it's a believable relationship not just because you know it's a couple that is having this essentially like the last hurrah before they're you know gonna separate and you know get divorced and whatnot um there's a that could have been played out as if it's just like, yeah, it's two people that don't get along and they're going to have an argument. But there's like one little line of dialogue in that that I thought was incredibly powerful and incredibly uh, like upsetting in that the fact and just kind of like struck at the core of the idea that this is a very believable relationship. Right. And that's the fact that you learn that uh, Prissa has a tumor, right? And that she learned and she's like terrified of that and whatnot and the ramifications that could have. And then at one point, Guy's like, well, shouldn't we stay together to get through this essentially is what the gist of what he's saying. And she's like, that's not an excuse. Like we were going to separate before that. And that was such a, like, it's a piece of dialogue that they move on from very quickly, but you can sense a lot of like pain and distance between the two of them, Right just in that brief interaction early on, right? Because it goes from introducing them as just this kind of, you know, uh, a family that's on vacation and then you, you know, sense somewhat of a rift between them. And then you kind of have that almost like a gut punch line, right? In terms of like, it doesn't matter if I have this illness or this condition, like we were going to separate anyways. Like clearly they've drawn apart long before that diagnosis or the reveal of that, Um, which, you know, just the way M. Night carries that, it sells me on this being like a real couple or a real relationship. It's not just the fact that they're separating because they're unhappy. It's like, well, no, it doesn't matter if this event is occurring because, you know, they were going to separate anyways. Yeah. Um, And that kind of line of dialogue in a way that, you know, sometimes when I see movies where it's supposed to be an unhappy couple and they're going to get divorced, we have to have like two or three fights and then, oh, maybe they'll get back together. But having it, kind of have them air out their true feelings on the matter up front. Yeah. It, I just bought into that relationship more because then, you know, you, you pick up on the little nuances or it further informs sort of just their relationship in general. Right. Like she says at one point, you're always making plans for the future, but you know, she can't think about her future in that regard, which makes her feel basically like invisible or not seen. I think she says, and then yeah. later on she quizzes him on, you know, what book am I reading? And she's got a book that, you know, is, must be 500 600 pages he's been reading it for a while right and the fact that like he's so removed from that that he doesn't even know this book she's probably been lugging around right. on the whole plane ride there i mean he does a great job of not perseverating on any one sort of beat for very long mm-hmm. which i found to be one of the strengths again of just establishing that core family as you know these are these feel like real people that have been going through something that's been going on long before this it doesn't mm-hmm. kind of feel just like artificially dropped as being this big dramatic fight between this couple that just was like a spur of the moment thing. Yeah. It's a movie that is sort of paced like a clock, honestly, like a ticking clock, both in terms of like the way that it's written is that it's always moving on to the next development. It's always like pushing ahead, but also like in terms of the way it's filmed, the, the scene as they walk into the, hotel for the first time the camera follows them in as they move into the living room or at the adults room and then follows back out to the living room there are a few moments like in the movie where the camera is mimicking the motion of a pendulum moving back and forth there's multiple moments on the beach where they have everybody arranged in a circle and the camera is either rotating clockwise or rotating counterclockwise to like get all of their reactions he's doing very interesting uh camera work on this that isn't just interesting for the sake of being interesting it is getting to the point of like everything about this movie needs to feel like a clock moving forward yeah it's not it's not just in service of like a cool shot or a memorable shot 
Um, it's more in, again, like talking about so, some of the strengths of the movie and it being tied into that central theme and the core of that. And really, you know, it's a film that the more you think about it, and, you know, it's definitely one that I think benefits from a rewatch. You know, the, the longer I do the podcast, it's just like, yeah, it, I'm just kind of like beating that drum of, you know, the importance of rewatching movies. You know, mm-hmm. people like you and I that are genre fans and whatnot, like we're more inclined to do that. But it's something that, you know, not everybody does. And it's kind of a shame when you see people talk about a movie and it's based off of a single viewing. And it's almost like, you know, granted, as long as it's not, you know, a three hour movie or something like that. Like, no, some of these movies, you know, there is more to it than just the surface of it. Right. It's the idea that, you know, that was what you just said about the camera movements. Like that was not something that I had thought about even on a rewatch, which then if anything, it starts making me like piece together scenes and just thinking like, oh, maybe there was a greater significance to the way that was formatted or the way in which he decided to kind of, you know, direct you know that scene and whatnot Mm -hmm. uh to complement more than just oh this is a cool shot of the beach or this is you know capturing the uh the allure of the fact that you've got this gorgeous island and then you know even more the sort of intimate uh shots of like going trying to escape and going through this cavernous area and whatnot like there is a greater significance to the way in which the camera itself kind of like feels like the vessel for the themes of the movie in a way Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what I noticed this time on a rewatch is I started paying attention to the names of the things. Like, I think Prissa and Guy both have very ar- archetypal names, right? Like, Guy, obviously, like, can be archetypal, and it's like, yeah, he's he's a guy. He could be standing in for all of mankind. But Prissa is a name that means ancient, and it's she's in a movie where she's going to age dramatically, and she is working in a museum where she studies architecture or um, archaeology. And the name of the resort where they go is Anamika, which I thought was a striking name, so I looked it up. And it comes from Sanskrit. It's a Hindi girl's name, which means anonymous, or this child's destination or destiny is not decided, basically. And so for, like, a movie that is about children having their destinies decided for them by forces beyond their control and then pushing back against that and getting to make their own destiny, I mean, it's not like they can reverse things. It's like they are screwed over. They're 50-year-olds now, but they, you know, they get to reclaim what's left of their life, which I think plays into the climate change analogy of it, right? It's like we can't completely undo the damage to the planet, but we can work to you know make it better or you know turn back the clock a little bit and uh yeah i think there's a lot of interesting stuff sort of going on with the um the the you know names that he chooses and also with the um with the um way that it thinks through how adults and children perceive time differently. So, like, specifically, you were talking about, like, when Guy and Prissa are sitting on the beach, there's a moment where Trent and um, Kara, I think her name is, the other couple's daughter, are playing with toys. He's got a robot and she's got a, like, little girl doll. Um... And he says before he walks away, um, I told you, I don't want to live like this. I want to live in a condominium. And it's like they're mimicking this adult argument with uh, playing it out with, you know, childish toys. And when they leave that there, um, uh, Gabriel Burns character guy and um, Prissa are left looking at the toys. I think he's looking at the He's, he's looking at the girl doll and she's left looking at the robot toy, the masculine toy. And it's like they're reflecting on their own ideas of what the opposite sex would be like when they were children and how that is looks childish and toy-like now that they're adults and sort of reflecting sadly on that. For a, like For a movie that, like we're saying, is paced very uh, steadily and quickly, they have moments for these very genuinely sad, uh, you know, 
moments between characters. And I think that's one of the sadder ones, you know? Yeah. You know, there are so many instances throughout the movie that, again, you couldn't be blamed for kind of looking past them or not picking up on them, you know, in those moments when you're first watching it, but more so like diving back into the movie, it's a lot easier to kind of like pay more attention to what they're saying and getting past the sort of, you know, the body horror elements and whatnot. Mm. And the, you know, reality, all of our bodies are failing us to a certain degree and whatnot, the older we age. And once you kind of get past, or you just basically accept the ride, that is the fact of, you know, the beach that makes them old. Like you do latch on to more of those little moments and little bits of dialogue. I mean, at the very, you know, not to jump right to the ending, but Mm -hmm. in terms of when you have that moment where Guy and uh, Prissa and the two kids are like on the beach and clearly like Guy and Prissa are are at the point where they don't have much longer. They've aged to this degree where they're coming to the end of the day. It's nighttime. By all accounts, they maybe have minute hours or, you know, just barely minutes left to be alive. And somebody, one of the characters says something in the effect of like, I don't even remember why we came to this beach. And then Prissa, I believe, is the one that says like, stop wishing away this moment, which, you know, again, maybe it was my inebriated state and whatnot when I rewatched it, but it was more so just like, there is a real sadness in that line. But at the same time, like there is a sort of blissfulness to that, right? The idea that like you're accepting it and, you know, maybe, you know, for me, like personally getting a little bit older and, you know, seeing people in my family get older and things like that, it's like, when you're with the people that you love, like you stop worrying about a lot of other things and you kind of just need to like ground, you know, maybe it's to your point earlier, like the idea that, you know, the colors are less bright or something like that, right? You're able to really like rein in yourself in a manner that you couldn't as a young adult or as a child. Right. And you can really just appreciate the moment for what it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that might be me just, you know, ranting a little bit, but it's like the fact that you don't have to have, some big moment occur or have like a big memorable event. It's more so just like appreciating the company that you're with or, you know, grabbing on the little things like realistically, like the parents. And I think that's a great contrast for that scene, right? Because the parents have aged even more so like they're probably forties, mid forties when we meet them or early fifties or something like that. But they have aged to the point now where like, if the kids are having that perspective, they definitely do at the point that they've aged. And so, the fact of the matter that, you know, the kids are able to be like, I don't remember why we came here. And then they're like, well, just enjoy them and appreciate the moment. Like, it's a sad moment, but at the same time, like, it's, and, you know, again, it's a testament to M. Knight's ability to have this fantastical premise, but at the same time have, you know, real world sentiment and emotions tied into that. And, you know, in a way that people that maybe are not as big as genre fans or people that like to like discredit horror films or you know genre filmmaking in general it's like well that's a genuine moment that carries a lot of emotional weight to it um in a way that you know just because it's packaged in something that maybe is fantastical and twilight zone-esque it takes a filmmaker like m night to know how to insert that in a way that doesn't feel preachy or doesn't feel you know unearned especially you know speaking about the by the point in that movie at the very end of it like it feels like a very earned moment even if you know based on what you know about the parameters of the world and the way in which it operates it's not completely unsurprising but the fact that he's able to sell it in a way based on their relationships rather than having some big penultimate moment between the core family i thought was really fantastic yeah um something that i noticed going back to the movie is that there's a real sense of what the children are losing by growing up so quickly in that early, um, the early scene between Trent and Idlib, the kid that lives at the resort who, you know, meets them. Um, Trent says, you know, we'll grow up and become neighbors with mortgages. And, (laughs) Like there, and also like the questions that they're asking the adults are, what is your name? What do you do for a living? Like it's very focused on, the kids are very focused on what life will be like when they grow up and they assume it will be the same way that it was for their parents because that's what they've seen. And I think it, this is the most powerful aspect of the climate analogy to me is that 
they're not going to have those things. They're not going to grow up to become neighbors with mortgages. They're not going to, you know, have a normal life where they can have a normal career because this is going to steal their life from them. It's going to steal the best years of their life from them. Um, and I think, like, that is, you know, powerful to me. It's this precocious kid expecting to live the same kind of life that he's seen his parents live, but that because of decisions outside of their control, those are being robbed from them. I mean, that's the the tragic part of the fact that, you know, at the end of the movie, they essentially are going, they reveal the conspiracy and whatnot behind the pharmaceutical company. And even if they're able to prevent people from being, you know, victimized in the way that they were and that their family was and that those other hotel guests were, and, you know, the countless others clearly that we know have been the victims of this pharmaceutical company's, you know, malpractice or rather uh, lack of ethics in terms of their mm. business, right? The idea, though, is, is that they're going, what are they, 50 at the end of the movie, right? They have mm. had their, and, it, you know, talking about a real world context, it almost made me think about like these, of course, you know, with the uh, evolutions in terms of like DNA technology and these different things and all over the last, I'm thinking in terms of the last decade of my life, it's all of these court cases or, you know, convictions that have been overturned based on DNA evidence, people that mm. have had 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their life stolen through wrongful convictions that are overturned through like DNA evidence and whatnot. Like, sure, you could throw a settlement, you can throw settlement money at them, but that doesn't change the fact that they have been robbed of something that they can never get back. And really no amount of money is ever going to, or, you know, whatever kind of um, amends that somebody could give them like nothing will ever give you back time in a way that I found to be far more disturbing than I did for whatever reason the first time I watched the movie. Um, And, you know, also like as somebody that works with kids, the idea of like people being robbed of formative years. And again, coming back to like me just, you know, analyzing my own life a little bit more now that I'm getting older. Like it's the idea that imagine that you have a huge swath of your, whether it be adolescent years or just, you know, formative years, even in like early twenties, mid twenties, late twenties type of thing. And like, while you might not pinpoint specific points at times, or like maybe there's like gaps of like, well, I don't really remember a great deal of details from that period. Like it's still all informative of who you are now. And so, you know, my brain starts thinking about like how these kids are going to grapple, you know, a month, three months, six months, nine months, a year from then at the point of the end of the movie. And like, how do they go about their lives being adults, but mentally not being adults? Like that is a, a pretty terrifying concept. The fact that, you know, by all accounts, the world will perceive them as being adults, but yet they're more than likely traumatized from not only what they've dealt with, but the ramifications largely for what that means for the rest of their natural lives. Yeah, I think part of the reason you couldn't sequelize this movie is because the sequel you would make would be too sad to possibly yeah. watch. Like, just the the idea of having all of that time robbed from you and having to try to... I mean, it is the, the carceral analogy is a good one. That it is, it is... It reminds me of people that come out of prison who went in in the 80s or 90s and it's like, well, they don't know what a cell phone is. They might not know what the internet is. They don't know what anything that is happening outside the world is. I mean, they might see it through like, you know, the news inside the prison, but that's a whole different thing from being in the, you know, world. So yeah, the I feel like the prison analogy and like people being exonerated through DNA evidence is a really, is another la- layer that this movie is working on. Like, that's the closest thing. I mean, it's the closest thing that we have to time traveling is people that go into prison and then come out 30 years later. It's like they're stepping out into a world that is just completely alien to them. And that's what's happening to the kids in this movie, you know? Um, yeah, just as it's a, I'm glad that there are the sad moments in this movie because it absolutely is a premise that you could just, sort of deal with the body horror of it. You could do a campier version of this movie that doesn't really grapple with the sadness of it, but it, like, as you age, I think the notion of losing time is just deeply sad. I think, like, something that M. Night Shyamalan couldn't have been thinking about necessarily when this movie was filming, but something that I... Because he filmed it, like, in, like, fall of 2020, 
But something that I think about a lot is like when I was before I got my full time job at the gamer, I was freelance and I would do um, features for this magazine where I would interview like, you know, hometown heroes is like, I think one of the, what their, what one of their sections is called. And I would talk to like, you know, teachers and I talked to healthcare workers and it's like thinking about the kids that were like, you know, in freshman year of high school when COVID began and are now like juniors or yeah, I guess juniors. Um, is just like, oh, well, because there's something in this, there's a line in this movie where one of the kids says, we never got a prom, we never got a graduation. And so it reminded me of all that lost time that, you know, kids had due to COVID, like just disrupting life that it's like, I was a very different person when I was a freshman in high school versus when I was a senior in high school. And like the idea of kids, you know, like being remote for a full year of that and then coming back in is just it's like a unget backable loss it just is and not that they shouldn't have been remote like i think that like you know policies that had the safety of children at heart were good it just is like even in the best circumstances you are dealing with something that is going to disrupt life permanently for these kids you know yeah and if anything you know the pandemic with be going remote and everything like it furthermore just instills the fact that in society like the people that need the most resources the most support don't get it right because that's the thing that's the scariest about you know the education side of things that it's like well those communities that don't have the proper allocation of resources and the proper allocation of funding and things like that it's like well if you thought that normally those communities were not being given the things they need to succeed imagine you know all of the additional you know, not only procedures, but, you know, the proper uh, venting and equipment and the idea that like, if you're going remote, all of a sudden, every single student needs to have access to internet, not only internet, a Chromebook or computer and whatnot, but also the fact that, you know, a considerable amount of the country and students are relying on, you know, free lunches and things of that nature and, you know, food and these things from schools. And all mm. of a sudden, like, granted, you know, where I work, it's a community that doesn't need to worry about that. But it's like just thinking about the ramifications for less fortunate communities or overlooked communities and those yeah. things. I mean, it it makes for a, a, a bleak outcome. And, you know, thinking about in terms of like having the pandemic and COVID and all these things, we definitely saw examples of films or, you know, creatives that we're making films that dealt with the pandemic directly or they were using pandemic horror in a way that did feel very sort of like campy or schlocky or, you know, in just general bad taste. And to have a film like Old that's able to be reflective of a pandemic and whatnot and to carry so many of those themes, but to not be in bad taste, mm. to not come off as being like, oh, we're going to exploit this horrific global tragedy and whatnot um, in a means to, you know, create something that people could get entertainment value out of. I mean, I think that just speaks to like M Knight's tenure as a filmmaker, mm -hmm. have the wherewithal to be like, well, you can address the real world. And, you know, frankly, it's a quality that some filmmakers, even ones that are good intentioned, like they could learn something from in mm. terms of taking real world sentiment, real world events, real world tragedies, but tackle them in a way that doesn't feel preachy, doesn't feel, you know, ham-fisted, it doesn't feel like a lecture almost, which, yeah. you know, granted not to say that people couldn't do those things in a way that actually made for a good film, but mm -hmm. in terms of like a general film that, you know, people are going into not thinking about those things, mm -hmm. I think that the fact that you're able to take those real world, again, emotions, realities, and sentiments, and put it into what is packaged as a genre filmmaker, or a genre film rather, speaks to the overall strength of horror, right? The idea that you can take horror and it can be this thing that from the outside it looks like a fun you know 90 minutes at the movies but is indicative of an overall message or it can be reflective of the actual like time in which we're living through right yeah i think that's the thing that genre filmmaking is able to do in a way that nothing else is right that it's like well, are you, like, having a crisis of faith? Well, like, The Exorcist is a movie that's going to explore that in a way that is n the opposite of preachy, you know? 
Or, you know, like, are you worried about, you know, aging or, or climate change or like the carceral state? Like old is dealing with those things in a way that is like not explicit, but it's like those things are there. Like horror is like a, a because it is taking us to like a, a, a situation that's not real, a place that's not real. It's a way that we can sort of deal with those uh, emotions in a way that we couldn't watching a TED talk about like, you know the climate crisis or whatever yeah i think and that's his strength as a filmmaker who is so often worked in allegory you know like there's like very few of his movies that are not in some way you know dealing with a specific high concept idea that has implications for what our lives are actually like and you know how we're living them like, I think if you're looking at stuff that is, like, not in some way allegorical, it's basically just The Last Airbender and his first movie, Praying With Anger, which is kind of still, like, dealing with... I mean, it, that movie's about faith and is, like, has, like, supernatural elements to it, kind of, but it's his most, like, grounded of his movies. And it, it's, like, basically just those two movies, and the rest are, you know... Movies that you can use to work through whatever you happen to be working through, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I guess in sort of rounding out now, and, you know, we've talked about a lot of the allegorical nature of the movie, the fact that, you know, despite this fantastical premise, like there is a lot actually being said that is more relevant than, you know, somebody like myself that initially was not too keen on the movie has been able to appreciate more and latch onto, you know, in the probably the sixth of, I don't even remember, six or seven months in which I first saw the movie. Um, it, at the same time, though, like, I'm able to appreciate that there are a good amount of, you know, genre moments and, like, scares and effects in the movie. So I guess, you know, removing or, you know, moving on from sort of the more allegorical commentary nature of the movie, like, in terms of thinking about the rest of his filmography, do the effects and scares kind of feel like they are, representative of somebody that is a filmmaker that is as tenured as he is does it kind of feel like there's been a growth in that regard for you um i honestly am very impressed by some of the stuff that he's able to do i mean i like the tumor removal scene a lot i think that like (sighs) especially like because this is like a movie that was done on like i mean a 20 million dollar budget i think so like it's not an expensive movie and he's able to get some pretty good effects. I think like where I see the, you know, the age and like sort of wisdom of years most in this movie from him is knowing when to show something dead on and when to sort of let it be in shadows. Like there's the the scene that I think is like probably the most effective body horror in the movie is when Abby Lee's character is back in the, you know, in the canyon and the kids find her and she, you know, her whole body gets sort of messed up and her bones are like broken and pointing every which way. I think like they he wisely like is only showing it to you in like the flashes of the candlelight. Or the match light. I think they have a match that they're looking at her with. And so that is like sort of like we're barely seeing it. Like it's too horrible to look at directly kind of. But then like the the surgery that they perform on Prissa's uh, tumor, that is like right on the cut. You're seeing the cut. You're seeing them lift the gigantic tumor out of her body. So that's where I see the, the um, you know growth for him as a filmmaker is knowing when to show restraint and knowing when to not knowing when to like, you know, force your face into it. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have to overly rely, I think on those really practical heavy or, you know, scare moments or things like that, because the movie overall, like again, blending in that premise is terrifying enough. Right. And seeing that through the character relationships and, you know, even thinking about, um, the Dr. Charles, right? I mean, that's a character that, you know, for lack of maybe a better way to describe him, he's viewed as being the villain almost by the end of the movie. But really, is he a villain or is he just somebody that is being betrayed by his body and aging in a different way than the rest of them, right? And I think it's clear that, like, he has dementia, which then evolves into something almost resembling, like, schizophrenia by the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's a character that initially, when I watched the movie, I was like, well... 
this is just a villain that is going to try to kill everybody. But in kind of like seeing his character's trajectory, right? It's again, M. Night is very restrained and calculated, I think, in the way that he presents characters, the way that everybody is. It almost feels like nobody is aging in the same way, which, you know, sounds very simplistic. But the idea that like, he doesn't kind of like crib off of any one character. Everybody feels like they are their own individual person that is dealing with age in a different way. And I really, really found, you know, Charles to be the most tragic of the characters, right? Mm Because there's one bit of dialogue where, you know, he, I guess there have been two or three instances at this point where he has these weird moments where he's kind of like, are you going to steal my wallet or something? He's kind of like, targeting the different minority characters and asking them these things that are very aggressive. And of course they're all completely basis baseless, but more so like there's a moment where he's sitting in the cave at the entrance of the cave by himself. And he's kind of like having this, this out loud dialogue to himself where he's saying like, I can't let anybody find out about this. They're going to take away my position, which I've worked all these years for. And you realize like his mind has been betraying him to the degree that like, his career and you see obviously his relationship with his wife and his daughter and and his mother like being affected by these things. And you realize like how tragic of a character that is that, you know, not knowing anything about him, the idea though, that this is somebody that like dedicated their life to one specific thing and obtain that. And now it's going to be taken from them by, you know, no fault of their own. As far as we know, it's more so just, you know, based on his, you know, DNA or, you know, hereditary things and whatnot, like he is going to, you know, succumb to that eventually and to see that sped up to the degree that others perceive him as a villain. Um, I think even, you know, Priscilla uh, has that line of dialogue, right? When she stabs him with this rusty knife, which then essentially, you know, rots him from the inside out and whatnot. Um, I think she has that line right before he dies where, you know, you literally see his body rotting from that where she says, I think she says, uh, I'm sorry this happened to you. I'm pretty sure she says that where, and you know, that kind of just further instills the idea that like, this is somebody that never set out to become what they eventually did become. And yet they were powerless, you know, their body betraying them and whatnot. It just, it adds a, you know, it facilitates in a normal sort of narrative arc, like, oh, this is the person that's trying to hurt other people. But in reality, like they are powerless to not become that just based on you know, what they were dealing with in a normal world. And, you know, unfortunately for them and the others around them, it has been exacerbated to this degree where their life is being condensed into a uh, a single day, which right. I think if anything makes all of those characters' realities even the more tragic, right? The idea that they're being given the sped up version of what their life would initially become, which is why I think hyper-focusing on like the family in general, or just seeing how other characters react. I mean, that is what's heartbreaking because they have to grapple internally, but also externally with how people perceive what they're becoming. And, you know, they're powerless to stop that, which, you know, further feeds into, you know, all the allegorical elements and themes we've been talking about. Yeah. I think um, Charles is a good example of like the way that our, or people's like prejudices and, um, uh, you know, harmful attitudes tend to get worse as they get older and the sort of filter begins to lift. I think of like, you know, old men in nursing home that are like grabbing nurses butts. And it's like, they had this, you know, sexist attitude because of the, you know, culture that they were raised in, that it was like, that was the way that it was culturally acceptable for them to treat women. And then when they're, you know, old men, it's like, well, the the inhibition is gone. They might be senile. And so they just feel like it's okay to do that stuff all the time. And like Charles is an example of like that happening with like in like racism that he's not showing on the surface in like KKK hooded ways. You know, you have the one moment where he and Abby Lee are sitting near midsize sedan early on and he's like, let's move. I think it would be better over here. And you can tell that he's just moving because he doesn't want to be next to a black guy. And then like that racism shows up in violent ways as the movie goes on. And as he loses his, you know, mind and the filter that would keep him from showing it in those aggressive ways now is gone, you know? 
taking it back to that Abby Lee moment that you mentioned, um, I think that the body horror elements and the big body horror kind of like scare moments mm-hmm. are feel very natural to the degree that I almost forgot, like, why is she having this crazy bodily reaction? Like, why is she contorting all those things? And I took it back, of course, to the opening line of dialogue that she has when she's introduced, other than, you know, clearly being uh, being a, one of the more vain characters, right? The idea mm-hmm. is she's, like, chastising her daughter for the way she's sitting because men won't think that she's hot or something right. like that when she says that. But, like, the fact that she mentions that she's, um, I believe hyperglycemic right and the idea that she's hyperglycemia and the fact that like again seeing the scares tie into something that characters briefly reveal about themselves it's such a forgettable line of dialogue if you don't watch the movie more than once and yet the fact that like the body horror elements and it's the strongest element of body horror in general right the idea that Mm -hmm. you know not only is your body betraying you but it's being displayed in a way that has been essentially kind of like foretold early on in the film and whatnot Mm -hmm. to the degree that hopefully the audience has forgotten. But if anything, it just heightens that moment because it's informed by something. Um, And I thought that that was not only one of the most disturbing part of the movie, but furthermore, just a really terrific example of M night being so restrained because again, this could have been a movie that very, very easily became kind of just campy and schlocky for the sake of like, hey, let's show how fucked up these people can get from being right. old and, you know, succumbing to these things that they've been dealing with, whether or not they're internal or external and whatnot. But the fact that he is so restrained in those moments, it feels as if like it is a film that's just indicative again of like his sensibilities as a filmmaker because he's never been the gross out guy or he's never been a guy that wants to have a ton of memorable in your face kind of grotesque horror centric scares and whatnot but he is very reserved in the matter of fact nature of his films and storytelling that it's like well you're only going to get a couple of moments but you're Mm -hmm. sure shit not going to forget them because they're going to not only be disturbing to look at but furthermore they're informed by you know these characters that to a certain extent depending on how they're written they feel like very believable characters but more importantly like what they succumb to is indicative of what little or what you know about them in general. Right. Yeah. He's such a, not that kind of filmmaker that the one time he made an R rated movie, it was marketed as like an R rated movie from M night Shyamalan. I think on the (laughs) happening poster, the like the R rating is like in a different color than the rest of the posters. It's like in blood, (laughs) it's like in blood red or something. Right. But yeah, I think that couple we've, we've sort of narrowed in on them, Charles and then Abby Lee's character are sort of like highlighting the way that age takes what you treasure or can take what you treasure most from you that she is like, I don't know if they say if she is a model, but Abby Lee obviously is a model and she's like taking pictures of herself when they first get down to the beach. And he is a, you know, doctor who obviously relies on his, his mind. So it's like, she is, you know, she is not being able to take care of her body. And so that is going and he is not able to take care of his mind. And so that is going and very, you know, horrifying ways. And I think, you know, they are sort of, I mean, she's not villainous, but they're sort of a villainous couple or the closest thing that the movie has to it. And then it it uses them as sort of examples of, you know, hubris or like the danger of tying your entire self-worth to one thing because it can easily desert you you know it furthermore just kind of signifies the fact that m night is one of these filmmakers that i think no matter the premise that's tied up to it again you know we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode like he basically is batting 500 right he's either going to be at one opposite spectrum or the other and old is one of those films that you know, I wouldn't say that it's a middle of the road just because of, you know, I've had a bit of a more appreciation for what the film does. And of course, you know, in talking with you now about it, just getting a little bit better of an appreciation for what he was doing. I think it's easier to overlook some of my shortcomings. But at the end of the day, like he is a filmmaker that I think it's safe to say, like, no matter the premise or no matter, you know, the size of the film that he's making, thinking about some of his bigger films that have, you know, been a varying success, but at the same time, like the smaller endeavors that he's had, he's a filmmaker that goes into everything with 
a clear vision in his mind, you know, again, whether or not that necessarily plays out to the masses in the way that was intended. Right. I think that when you take a film like Old that on the surface is very simplistic to describe, or you could say like, again, Twilight Zone-esque and this and that, like he's a filmmaker that has not only with his tenure earned, not only people, I think, that should give him the chance to, you know, actually express himself and, you know, support those films just on the basis of like, trusting in the fact that he does have something more to say than just what is on the, you know, the IMDb or the Wikipedia sort of premise. Um, Old, I think, serves as a film that you need to look past just the surface level because at the end of the day, and especially if you revisit it, as we've discussed, um, there is a deeper meaning to everything that kind of flows through more than one facet of his filmmaking and his direction overall. Yeah, he... um... You know, he is famously a filmmaker that had, that really bottomed out, you know, never really commercially. His movies always made money. Even like, I mean, Lady in the Water is like the one that it's like, that, I think like that and The Happening are the ones where it's like, uh, with, you know, like marketing budget, these probably like broke even. Right. But like his worst movie, the, the Last Airbender made a lot of money globally. After Earth, like sort of broke even, like even at his like most commercially unsuccessful, he's a filmmaker that is able to tap into something that is very like broadly appealing. And I think it is because he has a clear vision. It's a vision that can be easily articulated. Like old is so easy to mean because it is such a quickly understandable premise. What if there was a beach that made you old? Like (laughs) you, you say that to me and I can already picture the movie, you know, and where he's gotten into trouble have been the movies that are not, that don't have any sort of clarity to them. You know, like Lady in the Water is a movie that is like, what? Like, like I've seen that movie. I've read, you know, The Man Who Heard Voices, the book about that, the making of that movie, and I still would have a hard time explaining to you what that movie is about. And so, yeah, he, he definitely is somebody who benefits from when he has a clear idea, he usually can execute it pretty well, or at least it's going to be a big swing, you know? Absolutely. But, you know, I got to thank you for giving me an opportunity to not only revisit a movie that initially I was not too keen on, but, you know, giving me a new perspective and insight into it that, you know, I didn't initially have. And um, it was just great to get to pick your brain about that and, you know, getting a chat about M. Night Shyamalan, who is somebody that I haven't been able to cover extensively on the podcast yet, but, you know, hopefully that will change and whatnot. But um, before I let you go, why don't you let people know where they can follow you to you know, check out your awesome work. Even if you're on the gamer side of things, you know, I'll say that, you know, I really, really enjoy your writing. And I think that, uh, you know, letting people know where they can follow your work and whatnot would be great. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. I'm at the, the gamer.com. I'm a features editor there. You can follow me on Twitter at funnel chest 94. And, uh, yeah. And I will always, take the opportunity to be on one of Jay's podcasts so you can hear me here in the future, hopefully, or maybe on, uh, on safe room. Um, and if you are interested in old, I think like a decent amount of my reading of this movie and like certainly the climate change element of it was stuff that I had heard discussed on blank check podcast. So if you're not a listener of blank check podcast, I'd recommend going and listening to their old episode. They did like a two or three hour episode on it. So there's more there. If you're a fan of this movie. Yeah, that's a terrific podcast. And, you know, I'd be happy to have you back to Daily Horror Habit. And I'm sure we'll chat with you again on Safe Room at some point. But uh, thanks again, man, for your time. This was a pleasure. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJay. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.